Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. Today we'll be talking with Laura Teasdale, a bespoke tailor out of London. She's worked for the likes of Chittleborough and Morgan and Richard James on several row, and is now a freelance tailor, taking on bespoke commissions and specializing in coat making. Laura, welcome to Common Threads. How are you? I'm well. How are you? You know, I'm doing all right. I'm glad that we finally got these technological issues and problems kind of sorted out so that we can talk to one another. I'm happy to. That was a bit confusing, but I'm glad it's all working fine. Well, how are you usually used to doing uh, live events, kind of like what we're doing right now? Because I know I've, I've seen some of your Instagram live and IGTV videos. How does that usually work for you? I quite like it. Like when I record, I keep it quite casual and I don't really edit it. I just put it out as it is and I quite like it being natural. That's kind of my style. I know other people like to spend a lot of time editing, but I just like to do it and then put it straight out. Yeah, that's great. Uh, with Artifacts, we're also looking to do some IGTV videos or um, Instagram Live videos. And we've done a couple, one with Reza, and I can't remember who the other one was with. Um, but yeah, Instagram is great for that kind of casual content. And it'll be nice because we'll see those those IGTV videos and stuff kind of as like miniature podcasts. And we'll also kind of be doing that in, in Italian as well as English, which would be nice to kind of incorporate everybody and get everybody involved. Yeah, I think that's the best thing, just to have it kind of like honest and kind of immediate as well. And I actually thought you had to go live and then that audio and video would be recorded and go to your IGTV. No, you can just um, record something on your phone and then put it out there, like upload it like a longer, uh, because on Instagram you can only record for a minute for a post, so... With IGTV, you can record, I think, up to 50 minutes. Well, I'd like to change gears just a little bit here, uh, though I'm sure we could talk about Instagram strategy for quite a while. Uh, but we were actually able to get George Marsh uh, on the Common Threads podcast. And for anybody who doesn't know George Marsh, go check out our first episode uh, of the podcast. And we also have an article about Bert, who is George's business partner at Speciale, on our website at uh, discoverartifacts.com. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is because we were talking about Bert and George, and, and you guys actually went on a trip together, right? Yeah, Bert was there. So I think it was Bert's idea, actually, um, for me to come out. Um, so yeah, we went to Florence and then Naples. And what was that trip like for you? I mean, Naples and Florence are both uh, beautiful cities, and both of them are very rich, have a very rich tailoring history as well. Yeah, it was good. It was like, it was kind of quite refreshing, I think, for me. I, d I don't know what I had in my mind, what it was going to be like. Yeah, I know, it was a surprising trip. So we got to see Liverano and Pinico and the Chiardi brothers. And was that trip while George was working for Liverano? That was after. So they were in the kind of process of setting up their own shop. And I think they were just going out there, for, I guess, for inspiration. 
and also to sort out relationships with like shoemakers and leather makers and source things for the shops like shirts and stuff so they were just going out there on like business to sort out the shop and I was just kind of going along just to like have a look and meet people and stuff and see what the world of Italian tailoring is like versus English tailoring. Well, I have to say that sounds like an incredible business trip. But was that your first time really getting kind of your own firsthand knowledge of what Italian tailoring is like? Yeah, I think what I thought Italian tailoring tailoring was like was not actually what it was in reality. I thought it was just like soft and drapey and I didn't really understand like how the working process was different. So you kind of went into it thinking, okay, the Italians are kind of pretty much like Anderson and Shepard or, or basically just using a drape cut and may, the main differences are style. That's what you thought going into it. And then coming out of it, how did you, how did that change or did it change or, or was that right? Well, I thought it was going to be like less work than English tailoring. That's kind of what I imagined it being. And then we went there and I was like, wow, there's like so much like hand stitching involved in this. Um, and also it's way more of an art than what I thought it would be. I don't, I don't know. My perceptions were just different. So I'm so happy that I got to actually go and look at all the workshops and stuff. Interesting. Very interesting. So, well, as you know, all of my firsthand knowledge comes from Italian tailors here in Italy and in Rome. Uh, but for you coming from the English tradition of tailoring and traveling to the Italian workshops, you saw it as very artisanal, um, maybe more of an art than a trade. How do you describe or define artisanry? And wh what's that like in an English tradition of tailoring? I mean, or does it exist? Well, I think I especially felt it when I was in Florence, um, just seeing like the leather makers and the shoemakers and the tailoring it kind of had a more of a handcraft feel to it and things just felt a lot more slower than in London just like getting from one location to another like you walk around and stuff and it just seemed like way more relaxed just the like the vibe of like the cafes or, and everything like that compared to like being in Mayfair and Savile Row and in London and where I kind of trained it's more like Savile Row is more about business, I'd say. And well, like Savile Row now is is mainly more, I guess it's, yeah, it's focused on like, well, the rent is like really high in Savile Row. So it's, it's more about making money than like handcraft. Yeah, I can definitely imagine the pace of life being much faster in London with it being such of uh, such of an international city. You know, when you think of international cities, there's New York, London, Hong Kong. Uh, but I don't think Florence necessarily makes the list very often. So it's also kind of crazy how much the lifestyle of a maker and the, the culture and nationality of that maker can have an influence on what they actually make and that feeling that it gives off to the customer or client. Yeah, and I mean, from what I've heard, though, you guys, it seems the same kind of attitude towards making in terms of like you're working like six or seven days a week and long hours. Yeah, it's like hardcore in that respect. But I think the pay, maybe I think as well, coming from the outside, outside kind of view is 
is different. Like I was kind of almost on holiday. Do you know what I mean? So if yeah. I was working, I I'm sure I'd have a different perspective on it. Yeah. Well, what was one thing that you really took away from the trip as a tailor? Like maybe there was one thing that you saw or learned or something that inspired you uh, during the trip, or maybe even you saw something that you hated and you said to yourself, I, you know, I never want to do that. That's horrible. I think it was more the attitude to work. So I liked how everything was smaller scale and handcrafted. And I like the way that you learn in terms of that everyone starts off as a maker. Well, that's kind of the impression that I get that you learn like coat making and then you advance to cutting and you kind of teach yourself cutting rather than like on Savile Row, you can just be a cutter immediately. Like you can go from college and be a cutter. And so I like that everything was kind of focused on the make and then you grow your making skills and then you can progress into cutting. So that is influencing right now as you work, right? So because since you're working on your own pieces, I would imagine that that's influenced influenced you in your own learning progression and learning process as a tailor. Yeah, I think it kind of showed me that there's other ways to working. Like it doesn't have to, like my career doesn't have to exist on Savile Row. Like there are other ways of doing things and you can just get a small studio and then set up on your own and do things in a small way, um, take on commissions. The way that I work, I, I trained as a coat maker so, and now I'm kind of progressing with cutting. So it's kind of very similar to what I saw in Italy. And yeah, it kind of, just gave me another insight into tailoring and showed me that it doesn't have I don't have to progress on Savile Row if I don't want to well yeah and that kind of takes us to another topic that I wanted to talk with you about which is where do you see tailoring going uh because like you're saying you've taken that idea that concept of sustainability and small business and you've brought that back to London and I think you're not the only one doing that. I think there are other people in London doing that as well. Like we talked about um, earlier, we talked about George and Bert. Uh, so is that kind of where you see tailoring going? And what does that mean for you? Like, where do you see yourself in, in the coming years? I think there'll be a divide. So I think there'll always be places like family owned places like Henry Paul or more traditional companies like Huntsman and they'll like exist off heritage and their brand and being on Savile Row and I think they'll continue and then I think there'll be people that have trained on Savile Row that then leave and do something else and it's smaller and I think that's one because now you can learn the whole process and that means you're able to leave and do your own thing and two I think things like social media and being able to connect with the customer directly straight from kind of like working in a studio to a customer anywhere in the world. Now that you can do that, I think that has kind of meant people can leave and they're not relying on a Savile Row address or working for a company. So I think that will that will kind of start to come up in the next few years as well. So that would be kind of going from the traditional concept of having a heritage brand on Savile Row and going towards kind of like a more democratized or individualistic version of tailoring. And every tailor kind of has their own 
small following of clients. And I think a lot of tailors are able to do that because of social media, um, where they're able to have that direct relationship with their client and the client with their maker, right? Yeah, I think people are interested in seeing like the whole aspect of your life. Like they're not just buying, like there are some people and a lot of people who are just buying into the Savile Row kind of address and thinking that if you buy a suit that you buy on Savile Row, it's an amazing suit. But then there are people who are like genuinely interested in the process and like handcraft and like they kind of want to see what you're up to every day and like when I post a video of me working out and stuff, it gets comments. I'm like, this is strange, but people kind of want want to see like <laughs> what you're actually up to. They're like, how is it possible that this young woman ha- who makes all these clothes has time to do that as well as time to work out and do this and that? Is that kind of what you mean? It's not just like working out. That was just an example, but it's like the books that I read and then post or like if I go to an exhibition and then post like some artwork and stuff, I think people want to see like all aspects of your life and what you're up to. And I guess there are people that just want to come in and buy a suit too. But then there are people that are more invested and want to like build up a relationship with you a bit more. Well, it's kind of similar to what I talked about with George, which is that the client who goes to Speciale or Laura Teasdale isn't necessarily the same person who's going to go to several row to buy a suit there's kind of a, a bit of a difference and uh well m- maybe i mean do you see that difference yeah i mean well because i worked at a company that was that was um well it was called chitterborough morgan and it was the only company on several row which is a only a bespoke company so there's no ready to wear or made to measure so we attracted clients that were very much like the clients that i would still attract now or that george would probably attract the kind of their kind of clients where they kind of have to dig through and like find you it requires more work and effort and you really have to be interested in actual bespoke tailoring whereas I think across Savile Row I I think it's a different kind of thing it's like someone who just wants to go and buy an expensive handbag but doesn't actually care like they're buying the handbag for a whole different set of reasons like the status it gives them or like I don't know there's a I think there's a different mindset of like people who go to a fancy restaurant just because they want to be seen there or they want to put it on Instagram that's different to like the kind of customer that I would attract I think like what you hear so far make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now if you have any thoughts or comments please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. Well, that's also similar, kind of similar going back to what we were talking about with your trip to Italy. Uh, It seems similar to the kind of client that might go to someone like Liberano and Liberano, uh, where all of their clients are practically worship Liberano, and so do some of the people working for him. And they were, as well as the style that he has, as well as kind of the make and and the business that he's created around uh, bespoke garments. It just seems pretty congruent what you're saying and also what the Italians are doing, or at least what some Italian tailoring houses are doing. Yeah, I mean, I think if you buy bespoke tailoring, you should actually be in, like, you should be interested in all these things. Otherwise, it's just 
to be honest, it's a waste of your money because you can get something a lot cheaper, let's say, and then make it the same. Like some of the stuff, well, I shouldn't really go into it too deeply, but like it's not some of the companies from Savile Row, they don't actually make on Savile Row or even in England, they're making it in India or Portugal. So it's like, what is the point of that to me? I'm like, I just don't get it. And also, I don't think those customers even dig deep enough into it to realise that it's not actually made there. They just think Savile Row, that's great. It's like a name tag and it's an experience of going to Savile Row and getting, I guess, a different level of service as well. Everything's really branded with those particular companies. But that's again, that's not like really what I do or what George does or whatever it's more of a connection with your customer and it's a different kind of service in that way. Well, yeah, I think perhaps what those houses are doing is they're listening to their customer, exactly like you're saying, where that customer isn't necessarily wanting to dig so deeply into the make of the suit or where things are made. Uh, I think perhaps those houses are listening to what the customer wants and maybe that's what the customer wants. Um, or maybe the customer, or maybe it's what the customer is interested in. Um, you know, like the product, uh, they like the product, they like how it is. And if it's made in India or Portugal, they're, they're okay with that. Yeah. And I think to some extent, that's kind of where they're like, that is marketing. They're great at like finding those kind of tribes of people. And maybe they do value like convenience and like status and a lower price over what actually what bespoke actually should be and that's fine but the kind of issue I have is when it kind of when those companies say that they're bespoke tailoring when they're not actually bespoke tailoring they should just say we're uh I don't know like made to measure and we make Mm -hmm. in Portugal and as long as you're or India or whatever and as long as you're up to like being honest I think that's fine it's when you kind of disguise one thing as another thing Well, yeah, I think that's a huge problem. And in the tailoring industry, not just in London or in the UK, but in the entire world. Uh, And that's part of the reason that I'm working on artifacts. You know, it's uh, to find people who are respected and who are creating real bespoke garments and to allow those people to define what bespoke is for themselves and, and for the world and to bring those real businesses and tailors together so that there's some sort of cohesion across the industry. Um, which I think would allow people or I guess more specifically clients to be able to discern what is real bespoke, what is not real bespoke, you know, what is made to measure. Because at the end of the day, I haven't been able to see a real direction in the industry, which I think is necessary if we want to get rid of the tailor shops that say they're tailors and they really do kind of made to measure work or some, some other kind of alteration work. And it's an absolute sight to behold, you know, a made to measure factory run but at times they can say they're one thing and let people believe another and I just don't think that's necessarily ethical yeah I agree I mean I don't have a problem with made to measure work either I think it's just kind of confusing the two things and when you say you're one thing and you're actually not I think that is the issue and also why do these people need to be on Savile Row like why can't they be somewhere else in Mayfair like they are basically using that address to kind of elevate their work 
and they 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 need that address other people don't well i wanted to kind of talk to you about training as well i'm someone who really likes to compress things and well i want to do things as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible but not really to diminish the value of that training but just to do it as quickly as possible i just don't think that it makes sense to waste time uh what are your thoughts on training i know I, you spent i think five years at chittleborough and morgan right yeah i was there for five years um in terms of compressing the training you mean yeah because i think a lot of tailors say oh you know it's something that you learn over your lifetime uh or something that you never truly learn uh which i do think is true but i also think that it's used as a sort of way of not bringing up younger tailors or kind of keeping them sort of under control uh, i'm just wondering what has that been like for you i don't know if you've experienced that or not yeah so i try i kind of am the same in terms of thinking um so i wanted to compress my training quite a bit as well i do i agree with you in the in, in the sense that um I do think things you should kind of learn over a long period of time, like things like pattern cutting. I think that takes like a lifetime to kind of learn and you can kind of learn as you work with different customers and add new kind of skills. And that requires a longer length of time, but some things you can learn quite quickly. What do you think a good example of that would be? Something that you could learn quickly, uh, that you could be good at uh, quickly as well. Maybe something, I don't know, maybe like canvas or finishing work and you know actually having the capability to sew. Um, because I think one big hurdle that a lot of people need to get over, especially when they're just starting, is just being able to sew and being competent with their, uh, with their needle and thimble and with a machine. Yeah, I think what you need to do is break everything down into different stages. So to me, like just learning to sew and use your thimble is like that's a before you even start touching bespoke coats or trousers. That's like one entire section. So I guess that would be one thing you'd start with, just like good hand skills and using your thimble before maybe you even go into a tailoring shop. And that's something you can learn at college and then I'd probably start like breaking down the process of making a coat from like divide it into the fitting stage and then the coat making stage and divide the fitting stage into like smaller chunks like making up your canvases padding your canvases so I think it's kind of having someone because obviously when you start you don't have all that knowledge in terms of what are the stages of coat making so I think you need someone to split that up into sections for you and work with you and then do each stage until you're good at it and then move on to the next stage and then yeah and then from there just get better so that's kind of what I mean in terms of it does take a long time like it can take like five years but then there's things that you can add on over your period of of your career and your working life. What are some of the things that you personally have been able to add on or maybe that someone else could add on to their to their own kind of tailoring journey well I think you should learn like the basics of coat making let's say but then like you might add on certain things that you can figure out by yourself so like like teaching yourself how to do a different collar style or you might just 
add on some like that are things that I wasn't like taught but then I just know how to do now I can figure it out by myself like I don't know uh like I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head but like a different kind of shoulder pad construction for a different type type of client so you have your basics like you know how to put in a shoulder pad and like how to make a pagoda versus a normal one but then you might need to do something slightly different for a different kind of client that might appear and like everyone's body is different so you might not actually experience that kind of shape or issue until like 10 years in to your career you do learn over a lifetime but then also there's like basic stuff which you should learn with your mentor at the beginning so there is sort of a minimum competency level if you will i know i think i know what you're saying you get to a certain level and then at that level you can teach yourself different techniques or and methods because you're pretty much competent you know and i think that's the level that learning needs to get to. It needs to bring people up to that competency level as quickly as possible. And it's similar to what you said. So you divide all that into kind of like your first fitting. You divide all that content into your first fitting. You go through that. And then, well, how do you see that evolving? Uh, you know, I personally, I'm always trying to figure out how can we get people as quickly as possible to be capable? Uh, how can I get myself to be capable as quickly as possible and I mean that in a genuine way I'm not I'm not really looking to skip content or cheat the system um I'm just trying to make the most valuable use of my time and even more so a valuable use of the people who are teaching me in their time because they're you know most of the time they're working they have other projects they're doing so it's really to make the most valuable use of everyone's time um so what do you think uh, of learning and teaching in the tailoring world? Like, how is that going to adapt or evolve and change? I guess a mix of both. And I also think it very much depends on the individual. Uh, I think with this kind of thing, you have to be quite determined in order to complete an apprenticeship or the coat making process or cutting process. Or even just to work with other tailors because it can be difficult to work with people that, um, or at least in that sort of dynamic of apprentice and mentor uh, or right and wrong kind of, it's a bit of a fixed mindset approach. Um, For example, like in Italy, uh, I'm an apprentice and then there's a maestro who is your quote unquote official teacher uh, because there will be other people who will teach you. Um, It's just officially he is your teacher. And I say that just to underline the potential difficulties uh, of dealing with that dynamic alone. And at least in my experience and in the experiences of many of the people that I've talked to, at least younger people, I know it's been difficult in that regard. I mean, have you experienced that or do you, do you at least see where I'm kind of coming from? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a balance and like a catch-22 where people are like, yeah, it's great. If like I look back, I'm like, yeah, it would have been so great if I started at like 16 and then by like 22, I'd be like, I'd have all this knowledge. But then I'm like, at the same time, I know this is just for myself that if I didn't start later and have like previous life experience or whatever, one, I wouldn't have coped in that environment. And two, I probably wouldn't have been. Well, actually, I've always been determined. So I probably would have completed it in the same amount of time. 
but I think I even put more pressure on myself to do it faster and to work harder but I do think if you if you like you said if you start too young you probably won't be able to cope I don't think and I've seen it with the people that have done work experience where I used to work it was always the people who are in their mid-20s who could stay and stick it out and then the other people were like the younger people were like there's no way I want to do this I'm out so are those people who drop out sort of like the casualties of war and tailoring just has a high attrition rate or uh, do you think there might be some underlying causes as to why so many leave the trade so young as well I just think it's a hard it's it is kind of a hard job well, it's not that it's a hard job, but it's a hard set of circumstances to get through, I think, in terms of training, like the work environment, the dynamics between different people, people maybe not wanting to show you things, having to, like, even if you get an apprenticeship, you may not have, like, a mentor figure or someone that you can actually work with and train with and that actually teaches you a whole different bunch of things. And I think nowadays people want a career and sometimes in tailoring almost you can't see that like when I was starting out I never really saw like maybe this was just me but I couldn't see like oh how can I progress and grow and like as I grow in life how can tailoring kind of grow with me if that makes sense so like that makes total sense to me it sounds like you're pretty much talking about upward mobility and 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 like employee satisfaction uh, you know, if you try comparing a career in tailoring versus a career in any other field today, uh, what's happened is that the other fields have taken the point of view of, okay, what does this job offer to the employee? Especially if you think, if you think about industries like the tech industry, if you know, if you look at Google, if you look at any of the tech companies and the offerings that they have to their employees, you know, the offerings that they have to highly talented people, it's very impressive. Um, and a lot of that time, the employee also is looking for upward mobility. They want to grow. They want to learn. They want to know that they're in a challenging environment, uh, challenging on a technical side of things as well as on a, a mental side of things. And there's progression there, right? There's an upward progression, it, it would seem like. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that in tailoring, it's actually – it's possibly possibly there's no upward progression or it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to see that upward progression if it even exists. And then, and then you get into kind of the time and heartache of going through a typical apprenticeship and the years of living a pretty tough life. Yeah, based on that, do you do you think it still makes sense to actually have a career in tailoring today? Ah, uh, does it make sense? I mean, now I can see other options for myself. So I'm like, now I'm, I've removed myself from that kind of environment. I'm like, oh, I could do this, I could do that. Like, I feel so much happier. But before, I was like, I don't want to just sit and, like, stagnate. That's kind of what it felt like. I know that probably sounds dramatic, but I was like, for me, I, I, like, I want to learn cutting. I want to be able to do this. And I'm also willing to put in the effort, but I need to kind of see that I can get there. And I was like, how? Like, how can that happen? Because I need someone to train me and like cutting or there needs to be a position available and there's just not that many positions available. So I think tailoring is not a career. Like maybe it was before, 
uh, maybe it was a career before where you could go train and kind of make money and just kind of you would sit in the same job and have kind of an easy life and get by and now I don't think you can really do that like that there are some great perks like yeah once you learn you can have flexible work you can move outside like so you can move to the countryside and work and like so you can move to the middle of nowhere and get your work sent to you do it flexibly and send it back and that is like that may be good for some people but I think on the whole like it's not like you have to be ambitious and you kind of want to move up I think like most people now who do tailoring they don't just want to sit and like stagnate in that like middle level they want to move up and they want it all yeah yeah I think that's definitely a tendency in the industry uh but it's also similar to what we're what we were talking about earlier with small operations uh like those that a lot of Italian tailors have and like the ones that you were seeing when you had when you took your trip to Italy um where they do everything from A to Z I think that concept of doing everything in-house and sometimes only by one person is developing quite a bit in London uh for example like with what you're doing it also seems like they're kind of t- taking a creative perspective rather than that of a tradesman or or something like a vocational job. Uh, like you were saying earlier about how tailoring used to be more of a, a job, and now perhaps now we're shifting towards more of an artistic side. It's also interesting because tailoring has undergone a big change, but it really hasn't been talked about, which is that, or at least in Italy, it's undergone this change where tailors discourage their children from going into tailoring, and so they went to university and and they did what those tailors wanted, which was to create a better life for themselves. But in doing so, they they created this sort of generational gap of knowledge and of age in the industry. And so that's been difficult in terms of things like transferring of knowledge. But you know, in keeping with the theme of tailoring being a job in the past, I think today it's definitely seen as more like this great passion or or an art. And you have younger people who want to create different kinds of jackets with different cloths and different cuts and perhaps maybe in the past it was more cut and dry uh almost you know you're a cutter or you're a coat maker and you go to the tailor shop and you and you make the soup but maybe not nearly as as a painter might make a painting let's say but i definitely think the whole industry uh is moving towards more of an artistic or luxury side than anything else yeah I agree I think in one respect it's quite important to say that it is a job and I think it could be dangerous to be like this is your passion and label it as a passion because I think it should be a business and not a hobby and I think there should be certain regulations if you're working in a company like HR and all that kind of stuff so I think it should be taken seriously in that respect but I agree with you in terms of in terms of the fact that now I think it is something where where it's not like a trade anymore. I wouldn't describe it as a trade and I hope it kind of isn't seen as a trade in the future. I hope it's I hope you can kind of approach it in a more creative aspect, which there are some people doing and um they're not relying on like the Savile Row address or whatever. They're kind of doing everything themselves. They're doing the process from from the start to the finish they're doing like their social media and the photography themselves and 
the branding and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's it's possible to do that now. Yeah, and I think that's pretty incredible, actually. Now there are these tailors that do everything. They're doing everything from start to finish. They're doing buttonholes. They're doing finishing work. Uh, they're doing cutting. They're really doing everything. Um, some people even do both the coat and the trousers, which in the past would likely have been separated, uh, at least in the larger tailoring houses. And, I mean, still today, it's it's like that. You have your trouser maker and you have your coat maker. Uh, but I think that's pretty incredible, you know, that it's a tailor who is actually knowing how to do the entire jacket or garment or whatever they're selling to their client. They know how to do it from start to finish, which isn't something that was really practiced back in the day. And I think is completely unprecedented in the tailoring. Um, I was going to say trade, but trying not to. <laughs> I know. I say that sometimes. I'm like, what am I saying? Stop. Yeah. But I think it's important to know, like, even if, like, in 20 years' time or whatever, you don't end up doing the whole process because you've got other other responsibilities and you get busier, I think at least knowing, like, how to do it and, like, being able to just pick it up and put it down and instruct someone is, like, really important. Like, otherwise, I don't think the respect level is there. Like... Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.